Wealth Attraction Research, WAR, War, Marks and Markets, Wealth Attraction Research, War, WAR, Marks and Markets. You're listening to Wealth Attraction Research, WAR, War, Marks and Markets, presented by Hakeem Alivokas Alexander on Spreaker, Social Podcasting, Wisdom, Social Audio Inc., and Call-In, Social Podcasting, presented for World Reading Club in association with ExercisingYourMind.com and Uniquilibrium. This edition's reading focus comes to us from The Little Book of Economics and How Money Works, The Facts Visually Explained. Both published by Dorling Kinsley, The Little Book of Economics in 2012 and 2020, and How Money Works 2017. They feature various contributors working in academia and economics and working in the economic world. The first section I'm going to read here is from the Little Book of Economics, and I'm doing this separately than I usually would do. Usually I lead off this reading uh, with um, how money works. All right, that's a very interesting thing. Let's take a look here. Uh, so, first of all, there's a little snafu going on on uh, wisdom. So, wisdom's being a jerk. So, I'm going to have to try it again. That's okay. We'll get into marks and markets in just a moment here. Let's try that one more time over on wisdom. All right, wisdom. Let's see how it's going here. Wealth Attraction Research. There we go. War. W-A-R. Marks and Markets. Wealth Attraction Research. War. Marks and Markets. You're listening to Wealth Attraction Research. W-A-R. War. Marks and Markets. Presented by Hakeem Alibokas Alexander. On Spreaker social podcasting, and Wisdom Social Audio Inc., as well as Call-In Social Podcasting, presented for World Reading Club in association with Uniquilibrium. This edition's reading focus comes to us, ooh, yeah, comes to us both from the Little Book of Economics, as well as How Money Works, both published by Dorling Kinsley. The Little Book of Economics published in 2012, and then the second edition, 2020. And How Money Works, 2017, both with various contributors in the economic field, as well as uh, working in 
money and academia and economics. And I usually will be reading from the Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith first, but seeing as how the chapter two of book two is extensively long, and I also have a meeting with um, my Japanese language tutor at 5.30, it's already 4.37 and I have to drive to another Barnes Noble than the one I'm in. I almost forgot about it. So I will finish these short sections first, then go over there and do my Japanese consultation, Japanese language consultation, and then get into the Wealth of Nations, which will be a longer read. I wonder if I'll even get through it. Um, but yeah, I'm gonna add Japanese to my canon of languages Currently, of course, I'm speaking to you in English. I also speak Mandarin Chinese, also known as Zhongwen or Putonghua. Uh, I also speak Brazilian Portuguese, Portuguese do Brasil, and Spanish, as well as, um, yeah, I think that's it. It's enough languages for now, that's four. So I'm wanting to add a fifth, because I eventually, after my year contract that I have here as an Uber crew team member, in Virginia ends in a year. I may be going back to Asia, but part-time. I'm going to live in two different continents. Most likely, instead of going to mainland China, I'll be living in Taiwan or Japan. But they're close enough to each other that the flights are much simpler to get to and from different places in Asia than it would be going back and forth from the U.S. So I'll be spending three months at a time in Asia, three months back in the States, back and forth. So two quarters in each place, half a year in each continent. So, but let's get started so I can get this over with and drive over to the other bookstore so I can get my Japanese consultation done. This uh, reading from the little book of economics is called, Let the Ruling Classes Tremble at a Communist Revolution, Marxist Economics. I do also have with me, if I need to reference it, if I feel like it, the Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. Uh, and we'll see what happens there, if I need to reference it at all, if I want to, like I said. And then I'll move on to how many works. And how many works, that section is called Predicting Market Changes. So I don't know if I, I saw you pop into the room here, uh, Wandering Fool, but um, it's interesting that this is the part I'm on when I've been looking so much into cycles, specifically cycles of economics and things like that, dealing with planetary alignments and such, and how closely related to they are to, and maybe if they are not exactly astrology, which is interesting, fascinating to me in so many ways. So let's take a look at, let the ruling classes tremble at a communist revolution, Marxist economics from the little book of economics. So in context here, the focus is economic systems. Key thinker is Karl Marx, who lived from 1818 to 1883. Before his time in 1789, revolution sweeps away the old feudal regime and aristocracy in France. 1816, German thinker George Hegel explains his dialectics in the science of logic. 1848, Revolutions spring up throughout Europe, led by disaffected members of the middle and working class. And after his time, Karl Marx that is, in 1922, the USSR is established on Marxist principles under Vladimir Lenin. In 1949, Mao Zedong becomes the founding father of the People's Republic 
of China. In 1989, the fall of the Berlin Wall symbolizes the collapse of Eastern Bloc communism. Continuing, although much of economics is concerned with free market economics or free market economies, let me move this other device over here that I'm recording on calling. Okay, so although much of economics is concerned with free market economies. It should not be forgotten that for a large part of the 20th century, up to a third of the world was under some form of communist or socialist rule. These states had centralized or planned economies. Political philosophers were looking for an alternative to capitalism, even as the modern free market economies emerged. However, a truly economic argument for communism was not formulated until the middle of the 19th century when Karl Marx wrote his critique of capitalism. While Marx's influence is popularly seen as political, he was perhaps more than anything else an economist. He believed that the economic organization of society forms the basis for its social and political organization. Economics, therefore, drives social change. He ain't wrong. All right. I just got a text message. We sent out an email with a survey about fleet owners. Oh, yeah, because I have a fleet of cars. Right. All right. So <clears throat> while Marx's influence is properly seen as political, he was perhaps more than anything else an economist. He believed that the economic organization of society forms the basis for its social and political organization. Economics, therefore, drives social change. Marx saw history, not in terms of war or colonialism, but as a progression of different economic systems, which gave birth to new forms of social organization. This is something that I'm seeing more and more of, or understanding more and more of, that is, which is that uh, so much of our world is ruled by money, right? What is that, that thing from the Wu-Tang Clan? Cream, cash rules everything around me. Continuing. With the rise of the market came merchants, and with the factory, an industrial proletariat. All right, let me, let me refer to Karl Marx's and Friedrich Engels' Communist Manifesto, and let us now define um, proletariat. Where is proletariat in here? Okay, do they have that? Because I could have swore I saw a, uh, a, a definition of that there. Huh. Although, well, why do they have, so it says, the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles. It says by bourgeoisie is meant the class of modern capitalists. Oh, here we go, there we go. By proletariat, the class of modern wage laborers who, having no means of production of their own, are reduced to selling their labor power in order to live. Again, a proletariat is the class of modern wage laborers who, having no means of production of their own, are reduced to selling their labor power in order to live. This is something I was talking about yesterday when I was putting together my thesis of uh, hypno-economics, which I might have to change that name, um, which is planting the seeds of wealth attraction and how understanding the details of it adds more weight or mass to the gravity 
and gravitation with attraction and wealth. But let's continue here. So with the rise of the market came merchants and with the factory and industrial proletariat. Feudalism had been replaced by capitalism, which in turn would be supplanted by communism. In his 1848 Communist Manifesto, Marx said that this would be brought about by revolutions or by revolution. To explain what he saw as the inevitability of this change, he analyzed the capitalist system and its inherent weaknesses in the three-volume Das Kapital, Das Kapital, Capital. However, Marx was not absolutely critical of, capital, of capitalism. He viewed capitalism as a historically necessary stage in economic progress, replacing systems that he considered to be outmoded, feudalism, where peasants were legally tied to their local land-owning lord, and mercantilism, in which governments control foreign trade. He almost admiringly described how it had driven technological innovation and industrial efficiency, but ultimately he believed that capitalism was only a passing stage and an imperfect system whose flaws would inevitably lead to its downfall and replacement. At the heart of his analysis is the division of society into the bourgeoisie, a minority who own the means of production, and the proletariat, the majority who make up the workforce. For Marx, this division characterizes capitalism. Exploiting the workers. With the advent of modern industry, you know, for, so first of all, let's see, take a look. Ultimately, he believed that capitalism was only a passing stage and an imperfect system whose flaws would inevitably lead to its downfall and replacement. It reminds me somewhat, even though I lean more towards being a free market capitalist, it reminds me of some of the things that I read in Babylon's Banksters, whereas those type of capitalists actually, or there's two, there's, I, would, I would say that there are three different systems of breakaway civilizations. The worst, I think, of the breakaway civilizations are those who view the economy and uh, physics as a closed system. And what they intend to do is to, is first of all, they know that there is an open system of physics or that there's an open system existence of the universe being infinite. But they seek to control that information from leaking out to everyone else so, and keep everyone under the false idea that we live in a closed system of scarcity. Whereas the open system is abundance, that's open physics as well as open economics. And eventually, as the author Joseph P. Farrell says in Babylon's Banksters, that a closed system will eventually devour itself and collapse. Anyway, that, that's what that reminded me of, that line where he says that ultimately he believed that capitalism, capitalism is only a passing stage and an imperfect system whose flaws would inevitably lead to its downfall and replacement. I think that that only uh, applies to those who believe in the closed system of physics and economics, whereas the other class are those who openly want to develop the open system of physics and economics, but still want to control it and keep it from the masses as that first class so that, that, that understands the um, open physics, but, but um, applies uh, closed physics systems to the rest of the masses in order to control them. Well, the second class believes in the open system and openly uh, researches it and develops it, but still wants to keep it in, under the hands openly, though, under government and big businesses. Whereas the third class, which I think is the best, believes, and these are breakaway civilizations, and I'm using a term by put forward by 
Richard Dolan. And this third class is the ones who openly develop the new physics and new economics and openly publish it and keep it as an open source so that everybody has access to it, which was ultimately the goal of Nikola Tesla and what he wanted to do. And so uh, there you have those three things, but that's just my part of a, a little thesis that I'm developing as well. And I just got in touch with uh, the school that I'm getting my PhD from the University of Metaphysical Sciences, and I um, have decided to also change my thesis for both my Doctor of Divinity and my PhD in Metaphysical Sciences to focus on the metaphysics of money and economics. So it's going to be very interesting how that develops. But continuing here, exploiting the workers. With the advent of modern industry, the bourgeoisie had effectively become the ruling class because ownership of the means of production gave them the upper hand over the majority of the population, the proletariat. While workers produced goods and services in return for a wage, the owners of capital, the industrialists and factory owners, sold those goods and services for profit. If, as Marx believed, a commodity's value is based on the labor needed to produce it, capitalists must price the finished goods by first adding the price of labor to the initial commodity cost, then adding profit. That seems very in line with what Adam Smith said in uh, The Wealth of Nations. We continue. In a capitalist system, the worker must produce more value than he receives in wages. Hmm. That seems like an idea from uh, The Science of Getting Rich, in which uh, Chase Allen and I are reading in our new show called Literally Rich, in which uh, Wallace D. Waddle says that um, you should give others more in use value than you take from them in cash value. So it's interesting how these ideas cross over. So in a capitalist system, the worker must produce more value than he receives in wages. In this way, capitalists extract a surplus value from the workers. This is profit. However, I, I can see the difference, though, now in how um, Wallace D. Waddles put it, because that means if you, he's saying that the capitalists, the industrialists, the owners of capital should do that themselves. They should give more value to the purchaser of the products and services than they take in cash value. Interesting. I'm going to figure out how that blend works. Continuing. To maximize profit, it is clearly in the interest of the capitalist to keep wages at a minimum, but also to introduce technology to improve efficiency, often condemning the workers to degrading or monotonous work, or even unemployment. This exploitation of the worker of the workforce seen by Marx as a necessary feature of capitalism denies workers both an adequate financial reward and job satisfaction, alienating them from the process of production. Marx argued that this alienation would inevitably lead to social unrest. Competition and monopoly. Another essential element of capitalism is competition between producers. To compete in a market, a firm must try not only to produce production or to compete in a market, a firm must try not only to reduce production costs, but also to undercut its competitors' prices. In the process, some producers fail and go bankrupt, while others take over an increasing portion of the market. The tendency was, the tendency as Marx saw it, was toward fewer and fewer producers controlling the means of production and a concentration of wealth in the hands of an even smaller bourgeoisie. 
in the long term. And that, by the way, y'all know that the, that's where that, that word bougie comes from. You bougie, bourgeoisie, right? In the long term, this would create monopolies that could exploit not only the workers, but also consumers. At the same time, the ranks of the proletariat would be swelled by the former bourgeoisie and the unemployed. Marx saw competition as the cause of another failing of the capitalist system. The desire to jump into markets where profits are increasing encourages increased production, sometimes regardless of demand. This overproduction leads not only to waste, but also to stagnation and even decline of the whole economy. By its nature, capitalism is unplanned and ruled only by the complexities of the market. Economic crises are an inevitable result of the mismatch of supply and demand. Therefore, growth in a capitalist economy is not a smooth progression, but is interrupted by periodic crises, which Marx believed would become more and more frequent the hardship created by these crises would be especially felt by the proletariat. This is interesting because to me, at least, it seems like this is all covered in Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations. And um, he even says all this stuff. I mean, you know, interestingly enough, a little sidebar here again on Wealth of Nations. At the end of book one, uh, I, I love these. I love when people use really strong language. To describe certain things, and uh, Adam Smith minces no words, as it is said, when, at the end of Book One, when he says about the the, um, the capitalists and the owners of capital, he says to widen the market and to narrow the competition. Right? See, this is the same thing, right? This is what this one he says is always the interest of the dealers. To widen the market and to narrow the competition is always the interest of the dealers. To widen the market may frequently be agreeable enough to the interest of the public, but to narrow the competition must always be against it and can serve only to enable the dealers by raising their profits above what they naturally would be, to levy for their own benefit an absurd tax upon the rest of their fellow citizens. The proposal of any new law or regulation of commerce which comes from this order, he's talking about the dealers, right, the capitalists, ought always to be listened to with great precaution and ought never to be adopted till after having been long and carefully examined, not only with the most scrupulous, but with the most suspicious attention. It comes from an order of men whose interest is never exactly the same with that of the public, who have generally an interest to deceive and even to oppress the public, and who accordingly have, upon many occasions, both deceived and oppressed it. So, I don't know, is Marx saying anything new? It, it is has been said, and I believe it is so, um, from some of the commentary that I've seen and different things, that he was, he definitely did read Adam Smith, um, having Adam Smith's book been published <clears throat> much before the Communist Manifesto. So it's quite possible. So he's not, I don't think he's saying anything new. He's, it's not like Adam Smith didn't cover this and put all these warnings in there, as you heard from that very strongly worded description of the dealers, or as, you know, um, Marx is calling them the bourgeoisie. Okay, so continuing. So 
Marx saw competition as the cause of another failing of the capitalist system. The desire to jump into markets where profits are in, increasing encourages increased production, sometimes regardless of demand. But this overproduction leads not only to waste, but also to stagnation and even to decline of the whole economy. By its nature, capitalism is unplanned and ruled only by the complexities of the market. Economic crises are an inevitable result of the mismatch of supply and demand. Therefore, the growth in a capitalist economy is not a smooth progression, but is interrupted by periodic crises, which Marx believed would become more and more frequent. The hardship created by these crises would be especially felt by the proletarian. To Marx, these apparently insurmountable weaknesses in the capitalist economy would lead to its eventual, eventual collapse. To explain how this would come about, he used an idea proposed by the German philosopher George Hegel, which, which showed how contradictory notions are resolved in a process of dialectic. Every idea or state of affairs, the original thesis, contains within it a contradiction, the antithesis or antithesis. And from this conflict, a new, richer notion, the synthesis, arises. Marx saw the inherent contradictions within economies personified in the conflicts between different groups or classes as driving historical change. He analyzed the exploitation and alienation of the proletariat by the bourgeoisie under capitalism as an example of a social contradiction, where the thesis, capitalism, contains its own antithesis, the exploited workers. The oppression and alienation of the workers, combined with the inherent instability of a capitalist economy lurching from crisis to crisis, would result in massive social unrest. I mean, we're already seeing that right now. I mean, there's no... No, uh, no surprise here. I mean, it's something that we're experiencing, I think, a lot of social unrest. Okay, so continuing from the Little Book of Economics. All right, so, yeah, so all this uh, crisis to crisis lead in massive social unrest. A proletarian revolution was both inevitable and necessary to usher in capitalism's successor in the historical progression, the synthesis, communism. Marx encouraged revolution in the closing words of the Communist Manifesto. The proletariats have nothing to lose but their chains. They have a world to win. Working men of all countries unite. Revolution. Marx predicted that once the bourgeoisie had been overthrown, the means of production would be taken over by the proletariat. At first, this would amount to what Marx called a dictatorship by the proletariat, a form of socialism where economic power was in the hands of the majority. However, this would be only a first step toward the abolition of private property in favor of common ownership in a communist state. In contrast to his exhaustive analysis of capitalism, Marx wrote relatively little about the details of the communist economy that would replace capitalism, except that it should be based on common ownership and a planned economy to ensure matching supply and demand. Insofar as it removed all the iniquities and instability of capitalism, he regarded communism as the culmination of a historical progression. His criticism of the capitalist economy was met, unsurprisingly, with hostility. Most economists at the time saw the free market as a means of ensuring economic growth and prosperity, at least for a certain class of people. But Marx was not without his supporters, mainly among political thinkers and 
his prediction of a communist revolution proved correct, although not where he expected, in industrialized Europe and America, but in rural countries such as Russia and China. Marx did not live to see the establishment of a communist of communist states such as the USSR and the People's Republic of China, and he could not have envisaged or envisaged the reality of how inefficient and such plant oh excuse me so and he could not have envisaged the reality of how inefficient such planned economies would be today only a handful of communist planned economies china cuba laos vietnam and north korea have survived there is debate over just how marxist the communism of these states was under the leadership of the likes of stalin and mao but the collapse of communism in the eastern bloc and the liberalization of the Chinese economy have been seen by many economists as evidence that Marx's theories were flawed. And we have a nice little photo here that shows Fidel Castro in 1959. Fidel Castro's revolutionaries seized power in Cuba. They're all raising their hands up with uh, guns over their heads. At first, primarily a nationalist revolution, it soon became a communist one when Castro allied himself with the Soviet Union. Continuing, mixed economies. In the decades following World War II, Western Europe developed a third way between communism and capitalism. Many European Union states still operate mixed economies with varying degrees of state intervention and ownership, although some, most notably Great Britain, have moved away from mixed economies towards a more laissez-faire economic policy, policy where the state plays a smaller role. However, with communism largely discredited and the collapse of capitalism apparently no nearer than in Max Marx's time, it would appear that his theory of capitalist dynamism leading to crisis and revolution were wrong. Nevertheless, nevertheless, Marxist economic theory has maintained a following and a recent financial oh, and recent financial crises have prompted a reappraisal or reappraisal of his ideas, increasing inequality, concentration of wealth and a few large companies, frequent economic crises, and the credit crunch of 2008 have all been blamed on the free market economy. While not going so far as to advocate revolution or even socialism, a growing body of thinkers, not all of them from the political left, is taking elements of Marx's critique of capitalism seriously. And then we have a little feature here on good old Marx himself with a photo. And we have Karl Marx, born in Trier, Prussia in 1818. Karl Marx was the son of a lawyer who had converted from Judaism to Christianity. Marx studied law, but became interested in philosophy, in which he gained a PhD from Jena University. In 1842, Marx moved to Cologne and started work as a journalist, but his socialist views soon led to censorship, and he fled to Paris with his wife, Jenny. He got a PhD from Jena University and had a wife named Jenny. I, it was in Paris that he met the German-born industrialist Friedrich Engels, with whom he wrote the Communist Manifesto in 1848. He moved back to Germany briefly follow, in the following year, but when the revolutions were quashed, he left for London, where he spent the rest of his life. There, he devoted his time to writing, notably Capital, and died in poverty in 1883, despite continual financial assistance from Engels. 
His key works was, that's kind of sad, right? So key works, 1848, Manifesto of the Communist Party with Friedrich Engels. 1858, Contribution to the Critique of Political Economy. And 1867, 1885, and 1894, Capital, a Critique of Political Economy. So there we have it. Uh, Let the ruling classes tremble at the communist revolution. Marxist economics from the little book of economics. Wow, I'm really pushing it on time here. I got to get to the other Barnes and Noble soon and uh, get to my uh, first uh, Japanese lesson. But that should be right in hand as this is a short uh, section here in the very next book, How Money Works. So let's see. Uh, Let's see. Um, I'm going to read from some of the comments here on Colin. I got Greg says reading from Sputnik last time was not great. (laughs) Uh, Okay. Um, And... uh, Uh, That's funny. Um, And Phil writes, uh, not a bad accent, but those guys were German, not Russian. FYI. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. My my German accent is, is, I I mix it up sometimes. I'm not so good. But it's, uh, it's, um, it's fun nonetheless. All right. So let's see. And hello over on uh, Wisdom, John X, Cecilia Grace, Truly Julie, hello, hello, Cass, Daryl with the Dashes, Colby, Christina, Losi, uh, Nishan, Nichols, Reggie, Wood, Woodson, Kenny Frampton, Miss Breaker, and Wandering Fool. Thanks for uh, passing through or sitting a spell to listen. All right, this is the final thing I'll read here before I have to go, and then later on I'll get into, again, the very long part of Wealth of Nations. This is called Predicting Market Changes in How Many Works, the Facts Visually Explained. Predicting market changes. Being able to predict what might happen in the stock market is extremely useful to investors looking to profit from buying financial assets. Although, wait a minute, though, uh, Phil, wasn't uh, if 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 Marx was born in Prussia, isn't that Russia? Right. No. Um, I could be wrong, but I know that uh, Marx. I mean, Friedrich Engels definitely was uh, was was the German. Right, uh, but um, um, I thought uh, Prussia was Russia, but I, I, I don't know. I have to go look at my uh, my um, what the hell is that map called? Oh, forget that for now. So, predicting market changes, being able to predict what might happen in the stock market is extremely useful to investors looking to profit from buying financial assets. How it works. Investors use analysis to try to understand where a company, share, or stock market might be heading. They want to determine whether it is likely to increase in value or whether there are are factors that signal an impending fall in price or downward cycle. Investors also need to know how markets and economies are behaving and how that behavior is likely to affect the performance of other sectors or companies before deciding to buy shares of companies. that they think will do well in the hope of achieving capital growth. However, prediction techniques are far from foolproof, and there is no statistically significant evidence to show that correct predictions are based on anything other than luck. That is unless, of course, and these are my own remarks, you use astrology. (coughs) Continuing. Predicting the stock market. Accurate market analysis and forecasting can help investors buy or sell shares 
at the right time, invest in the right sectors or geographical regions, and limit their shares downside while maximizing their potential profit. Professional traders have developed ways to evaluate the future direction of a company, share, or index. Two approaches are often used, technical analysis and fundamental analysis. Let's take a look at fundamental analysis. You have interim reports. These consist of production, investment, sales is what I'm looking at these charts here. So interim reports are financial results give investors potentially valuable information about a company's profits, challenges, market position, and prospective growth. And we have company A versus company B. Competitors. Investors can gain clues to help predict price movements by tracking the fortunes of rival firms. And that's interesting because that's also part of, um, man, all these things are so related. Econ economy is just one bubble all in itself. It's an echo chamber. Right. And continuing cost versus debt. Uh, revenues. Investors can assess a company's financial health by examining the fundamentals, how much debt and income a company has. So here we go. And this is about fundamental analysis. Investors use fundamental analysis to educate themselves about a company's challenges, profits, market position, and prospective growth. They study its annual and interim reports and balance sheet and analyze its past and projected performance. They compare its revenues with its costs and debt, look at its profit margins, and take into account the quality and experience of its management to help them gauge its probable future profitability. Now let's take a look at the technical analysis. Here we have global price data. Because stock, bond, and currency markets around the world are linked, investors look for signals from Asia to determine the direction of markets in Europe and the US. Technical predictions. Rather than looking at a company's detailed financial data to determine its worth, investors use price charts to help predict movements. And trading volumes. Investors use trading volumes as well as price data to help predict the movements of shares and index or other financial instrument. And technical analysis involves examining price data and trading volumes in an effort to predict the movements of shares and index or other financial instruments. The approach aims to identify patterns that may indicate future behavior. Investors use it to help them determine which way a share is trending and to prepare them to respond to market signals that indicate whether the share is likely to go up or down in value and global data analysis. Asian markets open up to eight hours ahead of European and US markets due to the time difference. Because stock, bond, and currency markets around the world are intimately linked, what happens on the Asian markets can affect markets in the Eurozone, UK, or US, and have a bearing on opening prices when these markets begin trading later in the day. For this reason, Investors often look for signals from Asia to determine the likely direction of other markets. And it's so funny, you got a guy standing in North America with a pair of binoculars uh, looking over at uh, Asia. It's funny. Specifically, it's focusing on Japan for some reason. All right, and finally, need to know. Hedging. A strategy that involves investors buying shares they think are likely to rise in price while also selling shares they think will fall in order to maintain a market-neutral position. Technical analysis. Research aimed at identifying patterns that indicate if a share is trending up or down. And finally, fundamental analysis. 
an assessment of revenues, costs, debt, profit margins, and management. Yes, dry and boring, I know it is, but that's it for predicting market changes and how many works. Coming up in the next reading of this book will be Arbitrage, uh, and in the uh, little book of economics, what's the next section in there? That's going to be the value of a product comes from the effort needed to make it. Yeah, I mean, and again, that looks like Karl Marx. Karl Marx, but I really believe those ideas came from Adam Smith, which also the very next thing I'm going to read before I get to those in the next Wealth Attraction Research is Chapter Two of Book Two of uh, Wealth, uh, the Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith, and it is titled, "Get This, of Money Considered." as a particular branch of the general stock of the society or of the expense of maintaining the national capital. You've been listening to Wealth Attraction Research, WAR, War, Marks and Markets, presented by Hakeem Alibokas Alexander on Spreaker, Social Podcasting, Wisdom, Social Audio, Inc., and Colin, Social Podcasting, presented for World Reading Club, in association with exercisingyourmind.com and Unique Willerium.